uh, Thanksgiving weekend. And um, this morning, like last weekend, we're going to direct our attention back to Psalm 107. So you can turn there with me, your Bibles if you want to, Psalm 107. I don't know what your weekend exactly was like. Uh, Our weekend was filled with activity for the past, I think, five years now. We have hosted an international student over Thanksgiving time. And uh, Hao is with us today from from China, and uh, just had a great time with him. We did many activities on Thursday. We spent some time with my sister and uh, brother-in-law. Had a, had a great time of food, football, and fellowship. The three F's. You can't you can't beat that. Um, Friday we went ice skating together. Uh, I had a soccer game on on Friday. They came to watch that. We. Uh, also, we're part of a folk dance, which our kids get to be involved with every year. They, they enjoy that. We also, we recently read a book and uh, rented the movie. And in fact, we read most of the book this weekend with Howe, and we, we watched the movie, and so that was pretty fun as well. Saturday was Christmas decoration time. I spent most of my day studying. Uh, the family put up a lot of Christmas decorations. A Christmas tree went up uh, outside. Went to a park even. We finished a jigsaw puzzle. And now today, the highlight of the week. Sunday morning when we can give a chance to give thanks to the Lord. Uh, one of the things I especially enjoyed, I, I love watching football. Is really a call for Christians to be like football players after a game. Merely talking about the things that they have experienced. It's a call for us to talk about our redemption in Christ. It's a call for those who have been redeemed of the Lord to talk about what the Lord has done for them in their life. My message title this morning, this was last week, is Let the Redeemed Give Thanks. It really comes in verses 1 through 3. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. This is a call for the redeemed of the Lord to give thanks unto Him. It doesn't matter where you're called from, whether you're called from the east or from the west or from the north or from the south. All those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ are called in these three verses to give thanks unto Him. You know, the things that we have in Christ are amazing. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. We, we through faith in Jesus Christ, are become God's children. Become the children of God every bit as much as Jesus Christ, the Son of God Himself was. And we ought to, in that sense, rejoice and give thanks. And really, as this verse is saying, we ought to give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness in bringing us to Himself. That's what this psalm is is all about. And as the psalm develops, we see four testimonies of deliverance. Four people, or four types of people, four groups of people that find themselves in some kind of difficulty. That they've been brought to the end of themselves with nowhere to turn. And where do they turn? They turn to the Lord of hosts. Right? In their desperation, they cry out to Him. And He shows His goodness to them by rescuing them out of their peril. And in so doing, the natural response of those who've been redeemed 
those who have been delivered, is to give thanks for the Lord for delivering them out of their distress. This happens four times. There's always this this pattern we saw last week. There's trouble of some type. There's a, a cry to the Lord, and then there's deliverance, and then there's a testimony given on the back end. There's trouble and a cry, then deliverance and a testimony. Last week, we looked at two of these testimonies. The first is described there in verses 4 through 9 of the wandering soul. The soul that's lost and and searching for answers. Kind of wandering in a wilderness wasteland, doesn't know where to go, but reaches a point of of despair and cries out to the Lord. In verse 6, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And God then delivered them out of their distresses. And as God led them in the straight path, and as they went to the inhabited city, they are, verse 8, to give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. We saw the second testimony in verses 10 through 16. This is the testimony of the imprisoned soul, the soul that's bound, that is, that is, that is shackled, maybe literally in prison or maybe figuratively in prison as well. This is a soul that, that, that just couldn't go anywhere. It was stuck and reached a point of desperation and cried out to the Lord, verse 13. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. He broke their bands apart. And then their response or testimony, let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders among the sons of men. Well, we looked at those two last week. Today, we're going to look at point three of of our outline of the third testimony of deliverance. It comes in verses 17 through 22. This is a testimony of the foolish soul who's rejected God. Let's read here verse 17. Fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities were afflicted, their soul abhorred all kinds of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent His Word and healed them. He delivered them from their destructions. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His works with joyful singing. We see here the very first word of verse 17 shows us who we're talking about. We're talking about the foolish person. Now in the Bible... And the fool is described, he's not talking to the one who has a lack of intelligence. He's not, he's not talking about that kind of fool. Rather, the biblical fool is one who lacks moral constraint. Would the truth be known, fools are often more intelligent than others. But in their intelligence, oftentimes, it brings them to trust in themselves rather than trusting in God, and then they live for themselves rather than living for God. That's what Proverbs 28, verse 26 says. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. That's what we're talking about here. The one who's trusted in their own heart, gone off in iniquities and rebellion. The fool is the one who said in his heart, there is no God, and thus goes and does his own thing. Throughout the Bible, that's how the foolish one's described. Always described as one engaging in wickedness. Proverbs 10, verse 23 says, it is the fool who makes sport of doing wickedness. There's wickedness out there. The fool wants to do it and he makes it his joy and his pastime to do wickedness. That's the biblical fool. Proverbs 13, verse 19 says, The fool refuses to turn away from evil, lives only for the moment. 
And the fool is the one who repeats his folly, continues along the path of sin. And that's exactly what we see here in Psalm 107. Look at verse 17. Fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities were afflicted. Right? It's because of their sin, these fools were, that they were brought low. And it says in verse 18 that their soul abhorred all kinds of food. Spiritual food, probably physical food. They drew near to the gates of death, losing their appetite, abhorring all kinds of food. They were sick, didn't have any desire to eat. They're at the brink of death. And then that's the point of desperation. These fools in their sinfulness have been brought to a point where there's nowhere else to turn. They don't feel like eating. They are, um, they are sick. No direction. And finally, what do they do? They, they cry out to the Lord in His distress, in their distress. Right? Verse 19, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And He saved them out of their distresses. That's our faithful God coming to the rescue and He restores everything that was bad. He said, He sent His Word and healed them. He delivered them from their destruction. So God's Word went out. The the truth of the the saving message of Christ or the saving message of God to go out, call to Him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved from Joel chapter 2. That Word went out. They called upon the Lord and they found healing for their soul, healing for their body. He saved them from certain death. He restored them to health. He gave them an appetite to live again and allowed them to live. And the response was natural, right? We see this again and again. Verse 21, Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His works with joyful singing. That is New Testament worship. New Testament worship is our response to God redeeming us. Right? God has redeemed us and we respond in like ways. Thankful, praising Him, offering worship to Him. Hebrews 13, verse 5, may have even taken the phrase from this verse. He says, Through Him then, through Jesus Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. See, because through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been redeemed from our sins. We've all gone our foolish way, right? A sheep led to the slaughter. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him, Isaiah 53. And in going our, our, our foolish way, we've suffered the consequences that the Lord... The, the consequences of that are oftentimes desperation, they are difficulty, distress, sometimes physical sickness even can take place because of, of sin. And yet the Lord has heard our cry out of desperation, brought us to Himself, and we ought to be forever thankful for that. And we ought to be compelled to offer up a sacrifice to God by giving thanks to His name. That's what it means to be a Christian. To acknowledge your foolish, sinful ways and to repent and turn and trust in Jesus, His sacrifice alone. And I can think of several examples in the Bible of foolish people who've gone and done their own things and then they've been afflicted in their foolishness and then brought back when they realized where exactly they were. I think about Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) He's the epitome of a fool. King of the known world. Most powerful person in the whole world. He's sitting upon his royal roof of the royal palace of Babylon, reflected upon the city below him. And he said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? 
Now that is the epitome of foolishness. He thought that he did it all rather than acknowledging God's place and saying, God, I'm your humble servant and I thank you for the place of authority you've given me. He said, I've done it all. And God then stripped him. Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted because of his foolishness. The Lord took away the kingdom from him, made him dwell like beasts in the field, had his hair grow like eagle's feathers, had his fingernails grow like claws and a bird. But the good news about Nebuchadnezzar is though that he reached the point of desperation. When he was out there dwelling with the, the cattle, he realized his folly and cried out to the Lord. And the Lord delivered him from his distresses. And as a result, the Lord restored to him miraculously the, the kingdom of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar became a, a worshiper of the Lord. He said in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways are just. He's able to humble those who walk in pride. <laughs> what a great example of a fool finding deliverance in the mighty hand of God, merely crying out to the Lord for help. Another biblical example, the prodigal son. This is a fictitious example, but it's an example nonetheless. Jesus told the story about this foolish son who took half his father's inheritance, squandered it in wasteful, sinful living in a far-off land. When his money was gone, the son was at a point of desperation. He was, he was working as a hired hand, feeding pigs, which to a Jewish person would have been detestable. It's like the worst work that could be done. And there, it says he finally came to his senses. He finally came to himself and understood what he'd done. And in repentance, right? Remember what he did? He returned back to his father. And, and he came back home. And uh, he said, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. But the father received him like God does. Received him, brought him into the house, and there was much rejoicing in the home that day because the foolish son had reached an end to himself, had cried out in desperation, and had come back. That's the foolish one, the testimony there. Well, last week, I invited several men to come and give testimonies, right? When we, we looked at the one who wandered in the wilderness, I invited John Bunyan, a great pastor of the 1600s, to come and tell us about what it was like in his wandering and how it was that he found Christ. And when we looked here at the prisoners, we read the, the autobiography of George Mueller because George Mueller was a man who was, who was prisoned as well for his sin. Well, this morning, I want you to hear from the pen of, of Augustine of Hippo. I have here his autobiography, The Confessions of St. Augustine. He lived in the 4th century. So kids, that was like 1,500 years ago. This man lived. His father was not a believer. His mother, Monica, was and prayed incessantly for him. Augustine, however, lived in great rebellion for many, many years. His intellectual abilities were great. His father saw that. His father worked very hard so as to provide for him the best education possible. At age 11, I think it was 11, I forget, I can't quite see it on my notes. At a young age, as a young boy, he was sent about 20 miles away from home to be educated. And then by the time he was uh, 16 or 17, he went to Carthage to study. A brilliant man. But his brilliance isn't what made him a fool. What made him a fool was his lust for pleasure. Listen to what he said in terms of his lust for pleasure. He says, In that youth of mine, I was on fire to take my fill of hell. Outrageously in all my shady loves, I began to revert to a state of savagery 
My beauty consumed away and I stank in your sight, pleasing myself and being anxious to please in the eyes of men. He says, I broke through all of the boundaries of your law, but did not escape your chastisement. What mortal can? For you were always with me, angered against me in your mercy, scattering the most bitter discontent over all my illicit pleasures. Where was I and how far was I banished from the delights of your house in that sixteenth year of my flesh? when the madness of lust forbidden by your laws held complete sway over me, and to this madness I surrendered myself entirely. And those around me took no care to save me from falling by getting me married. Their one aim, his parents, was that I should learn how to make a good speech and become an orator capable of swaying an audience. He talks about coming to Carthage right, at age 16 or 17. He says, I came to Carthage and all around me in my ears were the sizzling and frying of unholy lives. I was starved inside of me for inner food. For you, yourself, my God. Yet this starvation did not make me hungry. I had no desire for food that is incorruptible. And this was not because I filled it with it. No, The emptier I was, the more my stomach turned against it. And for this reason, my soul was in poor health. Does that sound like Psalm 107, verse 18? Having no food, loathing food. On one occasion, you know, I'm sorry. I want to go here. This is where I want to go. He just continued to talk about how wasted away he was. He said, I wasted myself away in great sins. I followed in the path of sacrilegious curiosity, allowing it to lead me in my desertion of you down to the depths of infidelity and the beguiling service of devils to whom I made my own evil deeds a sacrifice. And in all these things, O Lord, you beat me with your rod. Once when your solemnities were being celebrated within the walls of your church, I actually dared to desire and then to bring to a conclusion a business which deserved death for its reward. And for this you lashed me with punishments that were heavy, but nothing in comparison with my fault. Here's a man who understood his sin. Here's a man who understood how he walked in his foolish ways. And Augustine continues on and on and on and on and on about his foolish ways. I mean, this is called the Confessions of St. Augustine for a reason. Because he's confessing his sin. In fact, it's a whole, it's a prayer to God of, of confession of all of his sins. It's all about his foolish quest for sin. But then ultimately finding redeeming grace in Christ. But through his sin, he became disillusioned with the Bible. He rejected the Old Testament. <clears throat> he embraced Manichaeism, which is a, a dualistic religion, which just believes in light and dark. And believes in good and evil. This dualism kind of playing back and forth. I mean, it's, it's totally not Christian at all. And then he got disillusioned by that and then he swayed over a little bit to Platonism which believed in the, the goodness of the spiritual world but in the evil of the material world. Just drifting spiritually. A, a fool. <clears throat> everything that. 15 years he had an African concubine which he lived with according to the lusts of his pleasures. But Augustine eventually found grace in Christ and listened to his testimony. 
he described here at this point, this is really one kind of the conversion point of his life. He entered a garden with his friend Olypus. He was under much conviction of sin. Listen to how deep he was under conviction of sin. And this is when he was crying out to the Lord. He says, And now from my hidden depths, my searching thought had dragged up and set before the sight of my heart the whole mass of my misery. Then a huge storm rose up within me, bringing with it huge downpour of tears, so that I might pour out all these tears and speak the words that came with them. I rose up from Olympus, Olympias, Solitude seemed better for the business of weeping and went further away so that I might not be embarrassed even by His presence. Just crying so much, He wanted to get away. He was all by Himself, crying over the weight of His sin and His tears. He said, this is how I felt. And He realized it. No doubt I had said something or other and He could feel the weight of my tears and the sound of my voice. So I rose to my feet and He in a state of utter amazement, remained in the place where he had been sitting. I flung myself down on the ground somehow under a fig tree and gave free rein to my tears. They streamed and flooded from my eyes an acceptable sacrifice to thee. And I kept saying to you, and not perhaps in these words, but with this sense, like Psalm 107, I cried to the Lord my distress. This is what he kept saying. He said, And thou, O Lord, how long? How long will you be angry forever? Remember not our former iniquities. For I felt that it was these which were holding me fast. And in my misery I would exclaim, How long, how long, this tomorrow and tomorrow? Why not now? Why not finish this hour with my uncleanness? So I spoke, weeping in the bitter contrition of my heart. Suddenly a voice reaches my ears from a a nearby house. It is the voice of a boy or a girl. I do not know which. And in a kind of sing-song, the words are constantly repeated. Take it and read it. 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 So they're playing some game over here and he hears these kids. Take it and read it. Take it and read it. And he said, at once my face changed and I began to think carefully of whether the singing of words like these came into any kind of game which children play. And I could not remember that. I had ever heard anything like it before. I checked the force of my tears and rose to my feet, being quite certain that I must interpret this as a divine command for me to open the book and read the first passage I should come to. I don't suggest this, but this is what he did. He just took the Bible and said, turned and said, boom, there. And he read. He said, so I went eagerly back to the place where Olypius was sitting. Since it was there that I had left the book of the Apostle when I rose to my feet, I snatched up the book, I opened it, and read in silence the passage upon which my eyes fell not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh in concupiscence. Which was his particular sin. I had no wish to read further. There was no need to, for immediately I had reached the end of the sentence. It was as though my heart was filled with a light of confidence and all the shadows of my doubt were swept away. That's really the the turning point in the book is chapter 8. And really for the last half of the book, he spends it oftentimes in praising God, though his struggles and uh, though still confessing, right? This whole whole book is a prayer to God. It's a prayer of his confessions and is also a prayer of, of thanks and praise to God. You just need to look through here to see Right? What I just I just picked out one passage here. It says, For the, the strength is brought down in need. My strength is brought down in need. So I cannot supply my good till you, Lord, 
who have been gracious to all my iniquities, shall heal all my infirmities. For you will also redeem my life from corruption and crown me with loving kindness and tender mercies and shall satisfy my desire with good things because of my youth shall be renewed like an eagle's. For in hope we are saved. Therefore, we through patience wait for your promises. Let him who is able to hear your discourse deep within him, I, in the words of your oracle, will confidently cry out, How wonderful are your works, O Lord! In wisdom you have made them all. And that wisdom is the beginning, and that beginning you made heaven and earth. He goes on and on. Just just a, a prayer of confessions and thanks and praise to God. I thought he would be a good example of someone to bring as a fool who was brought back unto the Lord, as a fool who was in distress and cried out to the Lord, which indeed he did. There's the foolish testimony. You ready for another cycle? Let's listen to another testimony. It's testimony number 4, verse 23 through 32. And again, the testimony is the same. We've heard of those who've wandered. We've heard of those who were imprisoned, those who are foolish. And now, those who are in danger of the sea. We're going to see the trouble, cry, deliverance, and testimony. The only thing different about this testimony is a little bit longer than the others. And I trust maybe you'll be able to see and hear where the trouble is and where the cry starts, where the deliverance comes and where the testimony is. Verse 23, let's read. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So He guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol Him also in the congregation of the people and praise Him at the seat of the elders. It's a testimony of those who have faced dangers on the sea. Now, I've never been on the high seas before. Um, I know those who have been in the Navy who haven't been on the high seas before. (laughs) But from everything I've heard and everything I've read, It's a terrifying experience to be out on the sea when a storm comes up. One man said, He that cannot pray, let him go to sea, and there he will learn to pray. Just because you're out in the difficulty. In preparing for this message, I heard a man describe the story of him being in the Navy, and he described being out in the sea with 50-foot breakers, 50-foot waves, coming upon the boat. He said the only way to get any sleep in such a storm is to strap yourself into the bed because a 50-foot wave means a 50 or bigger foot swell. And he says you're going up and down 50 feet in the air and then the boat's coming up and rocking around like this. And the only way to sleep is to bind yourself up. He says it's a terrifying experience. He tells of one time they were driven 300 miles off course because of a storm getting around it rather than getting in it. But he's been in them is what he said. And all this took place on a modern warship. You think about a modern warship, I mean, those things are are big and huge. 
you have any idea how big this ship was that these merchants who go down to the sea in ships and do business on great waters would have been? We saw a special this week, Thanksgiving holiday, after the football game. We watched um, Secrets of the Mayflower. I think it's some history channel. You know, we don't have cable at home, so it's good to get cable and kind of, you know, soak in these channels that are kind of nice. And the history of the Mayflower we kind of watched. And, and I think that would be about the size of the boat. I mean, probably bigger than the boat that they dealt with, maybe 120 feet long and, you know, just um, small. But that's all they had. That's all they could build out of wood. And I can only imagine what it would be to be, be like to be caught on the sea with one of these boats 2,500 years ago. The reeling and the, the drifting and the bouncing and everything. 50-foot swells are going to entirely come over a boat in those days. Well, the psalmist here describes expert sailors who have seen their fair share of storms. Right there in the habit of <clears throat> doing business in these great waters. They go out and get their their um, supplies and their trade and they come bring it back and they fill their boat again. They go out and back and out and back and out and back. And they've been many waters many times and they have seen the, the terrible destruction. They know of the dangers of the waves coming over. They know of the dangers of perhaps being drowned out there. And it's easy to understand how they can fear for their lives. It says in verse 24, they've seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. Verse 25 describes what I was describing. God spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens went down to the depths. And sometimes in the storm, these expert sailors, merchantmen, businessmen have done this many, many times before. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Literally, all of their wisdom was swallowed up. The storm is coming. These breakers are coming over the boat. They're in peril out there. They're, all their wisdom is swallowed up. They don't have anywhere to turn, but where can they turn? They can turn to the Lord of hosts who is sitting at the throne of God. And they turn to Him and that's what they do. The only one who can possibly help them in this situation. And they cry out to the Lord in their distress. And what does He do? He causes the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Verse 29. I'm drawn back to think about what took place the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago in the days of Jesus. His disciples were on the sea with Him after a long day of, of ministry and Jesus actually sleeping in the boat. This great storm arose on the sea, covered the boat with waves. And these fishermen disciples who lived out on the sea were terrified at the storm. They woke Jesus up and said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Then after a rebuke to the disciples, Jesus rebuked the wind and the sea, saying, Hush, be still. And two miracles happened that day. He stopped the wind from blowing. And he instantly stopped all the waves, still as could be. It caused the disciples to respond to him in fear. It's a little bit like worship, but they were afraid. And they said, who is it that even the wind and the sea obey him? They knew full well who delivered him. It was Jesus Christ who calmed the storm. And they were terrified and really probably bowed in worship and fear towards the mighty hand of God. You know, there's something about being in the sea when the, you pass the storm and it's calm that 
the natural response is worship and praise the Lord. Lord, perhaps you remember the story of um, Jonah. Of course you know the story of Jonah, right? All you kids have seen the story of Jonah, right? I got a picture of the pirates there on the on the ship, but you know, he was told to go to Nineveh and he said, Uh uh-uh, uh, no way and rather than going east he went west, got on a ship, rather than going across land, he went across the water and headed down to Tarshish. And you remember what God did, right? He hurled a great storm upon the sea. And Jonah knew full well it was because of his disobedience. He told these pagan, non-believing sailors, he said, pick me up and and throw me into the sea and then the sea will be calm for you because I know on account of me the great storm has come upon you. Well, at first, remember, they they didn't want to throw Jonah in. They started throwing all their cargo. They started jettisoning all their cargo because the storm was so bad. And then um, finally he said again, kind of throw me in. And reluctantly the sailors did so. They threw him in. Once Jonah hit the water, the sea stopped its raging. Do you know how these sailors responded? These pagan, unbelieving sailors. you know how they responded? It says in Jonah chapter 1, verse 16, they feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They said, there must be something about this God who saved us and delivered us from the storm. And that's exactly what we see in Psalm 107. Right? Those who have seen the mighty deliverance of the Lord were glad, first of all, in verse 30. Were glad to see Him guiding them to their desired haven. And then they were called to give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol Him also in the congregation of the people and praise Him at the seat of the elders. Here's their response. The response is one of worship and adoration and awe and praise at God who had delivered them. Well, I want to invite another person to come and give a testimony in his life of what he has done. We've seen John Bunyan who wandered. We've seen George Mueller who was imprisoned. We've seen Augustine of Hippo who was foolish. And now I invite John Newton in his autobiography, Out of the Depths is really what it's called. Many of you know his story. He was a, a slave trader in the 1700s. And due to his wayward ways, he spent much time upon the sea. Knew the sea very well. But it wasn't until he almost died that he finally gave up his life to the Lord. Let me read this for you. And there's a lot of John Newton that we can read. But he said this. He He talked about being on a a passenger on this um, trade ship that was full of, uh, I forget, it was beeswax and wood and other things that he was he was giving and he was working here as a hired hand. He said, the, as he interacted with the captain, he said, my life when awake was a course of most horrid impiety and profaneness. I know not that I ever since met so daring a blasphemer. Not content with common oaths and imprecations, I daily invented new ones so that I was often seriously reproved by the captain who was a very passionate man and not at all circumspect in his his expressions. And from what I told him of my past adventures and what he saw of my conduct, especially toward the close of the voyage when he met with many disasters, he would often tell me, that to his grief, he had a Jonah on board. That a curse attended me wherever I went. And that all the troubles he met with in this voyage were owing to his having taken me into the vessel. 
He tells a story, I'm going to skip here, about a story when he got drunk and was almost thrown overboard except his drunken sailors captured him because had he fallen in the water, he can't even swim. But being drunk, he certainly would have drowned. But the Lord saw fit to save him out of that on the ship. He says, Now, but the Lord's time was come. And the conviction I was so unwilling to receive was deeply impressed upon me. I went to bed that night in my usual security and indifference, but was awakened from a sound sleep by the force of a violent sea which broke upon us. Much of it came down below and filled the cabin where I lay with water. Sleeping there, you know, a little leak, it starts filling his cabin with seawater. This alarm was followed by a a cry from the deck that the ship was going down or sinking. As soon as I could recover myself, I started to go up to the deck, but was met on the ladder by the captain who desired me to bring a knife with me. And while I returned for the knife, another person went up in my place who was instantly washed overboard. We had no leisure to lament him, nor did we expect to survive him for long, for we soon found the ship was filling up very fast, and the sea had torn away the upper timbers on the one side and made the ship a mere wreck in a few minutes. Taking in all circumstances, I was it was astonishing and almost miraculous that any of us survived. He said, except that we had a quantity of beeswax and wood on board, that were lighter than water, we would have sunk for sure. He said um, they were using bedding and clothing to try to stop the leaks. He said now, this is in the morning, about 9 o'clock, working all day, being almost spent with cold and labor, I went to speak with a captain who was busy elsewhere. And as I was returning, I said almost without any meeting, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. And this, though spoken with little reflection, was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years. And I was instantly struck with my own words. As Jehu once said, What hast thou to do with peace? So it directly occurred, What mercy can there be for me? And then he said he went back to the pump and, and had to pump some more and how he dreaded death and how he was just so dangerous. So so scared of his danger. Then he talked about March 21st being a day to be remembered by him. He said, I never suffered it to pass wholly unnoticed since the year 1748 because that's the year, that's the time in which the storm came. And he remembered this date. This is like the conversion date of, of what took place. And then he said, um, he was so exhausted he wasn't able to pump. So therefore he went to the the ship's helm and steered the ship till midnight. He said, I had there the, the leisure to opportunity to think of my former former religious professions, the calls, the warnings, the deliverances I'd met with, the licentious course of my life, particularly my unparalleled effrontery in making the gospel the subject of profane ridicule. I thought allowing the scripture premises there never was, nor could be such a sinner as myself. And then comparing the advantages I had broken through, concluded at first that my sins were too great to be forgiven. He goes on to talk about his sin and how bad he saw it. And he says, When I saw beyond all probability there was still hope of respite and heard about six in the evening that the ship was freed from water. So this is you know, perhaps a day, two days that they've been just working at this. 
there arose a, a gleam of hope within me. I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor and I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to reconcile God and call Him Father. My prayer was like the cry of raven, ravens, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. I now began to think that Jesus, whom I had so often derided, I recollected the particulars of my life and of His death, a death for sins and not His own, and for those who in their distress should put their trust in Him. And now I chiefly wanted evidence. The comfortless principles of infidelity were deeply riveted, and I'd rather wish than believe that these things were real facts. His sin came to haunt him. He saw his sin big. He knew of Christ to save. He wanted to believe. He didn't know how. He wanted to cry a prayer of faith, but he didn't know how. Then he goes back to talk about how the uh, <clears throat> the boat went on. He said that they um, you know, threw some things overboard. Things continued for four or five days. They'd see land and they'd try to go there, but the ship was so disabled they couldn't quite get there and then was blown off to sea. They were rationing their their food. He said the provisions were very short. Half of a salted cod was a day's subsistence for 12 people. Half a little bit for 12 people. The captain was discouraged. He was confident that if I was thrown overboard and not otherwise, they should have been preserved from death, so the captain said. And he says, however, as we proceeded, I conceived hopes greater than all my fears. When we were ready to give up all for lost and despair was on every countenance, the wind came up about to the very point we wished it. So as best to suit that broken part of the ship, which must be kept out of water. There's a part that had to be kept so they could only go one way, right? They couldn't bend this way. They could, they could only hit, maybe stay on this side. And so the wind was perfect. It said, as gently as our few remaining sails could bear it, continued till we once more were called up to see the land. We saw the island Tory, and the next day anchored in low Swilly Ireland. This was April 8th, just four weeks after the damage we sustained from the sea. We came into this port. Our very last victuals were boiling in the pot. Before we'd been there two hours, the wind began to blow with great violence. If we had continued at sea that night in our shattered, enfeebled condition, we would, to all human appearances, have gone to the bottom. About this time, I began to know that there is a God who hears and answers prayer. How many times has He appeared for me since this great deliverance? And yet, how did He respond? He said, Yet alas, how distrustful and ingrateful my heart is unto this hour. In other words, He's saying, I ought to be so extremely grateful and thankful to the Lord. And he was, right? You remember John Newton? He wrote some of the great hymns of the faith the Lord will provide. He wrote Amazing Grace. And when he got to the end, he said, Oh, how distrustful and how ungrateful my heart is to this hour. Because he saw just how thankful he needed to be for being redeemed from his sins. He was redeemed from the sea and he was also redeemed from the pit of hell. And felt it that he always ought to give thanks and praise to God. Even as verse 31 says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and His wonders to the sons of men. And John Newton did, right? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangerous toils and snares I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. 
He's just one who trusted in the Lord and gave great praise and adoration to the Lord. Well, there's our, our fourth testimony. We call our attention now to the last part of the psalm. This is a lesson of God's providence. A lesson of God's providence. I want to read the text. We don't have a lot of time here this morning, but we'll make a few comments about this. This is very good. He says, verse 33, God changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He changes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. And there He makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish an inhabited city and sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them and they multiply greatly. And He does not let their cattle decrease when they are diminished and bowed down through oppression and misery and sorrow. He pours contempt upon princes and makes them wander in the pathless waste. But He sets the needy securely on high, away from affliction, and He makes His families like a flock. The upright see it and are glad, but all unrighteousness shuts its mouth. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. Talking here about providence, just what it is that God does. He brings famine upon lands. Look at verse 33. <clears throat> he changes rivers into a wilderness. That which used to abound with water and grow, it says God changes that into a wilderness. What once used to be fertile and abounding in abundance, He brings down. Just like in the days of Elijah. He shut the heavens for three and a half years. It didn't rain. Caused the people much distress. And then Elijah prayed, and then what happened? It rained. Right? And that's what we see here beginning, right, in verse 35. He changes the wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. He's describing there just the blessing that God brings. God brings both the, the calamity. And He brings also then the blessing upon people as well. He brings the rain. He brings the abundance. He makes the hungry right to dwell in that land of abundance where the rain comes and where the fruit comes. And they sow fields and plant vineyards. They gather a harvest. There is blessing. There is much. Even as it says in verse 38 that He blesses them and they multiply greatly. It's the hand of the Lord that does that. This is providence. God bringing fertile lands to desolation and raising up fertile lands into be fruitful lands. He does it not only upon lands, He does this also upon people. It says in verse 40, He pours contempt upon princes, right? These who are proud and high and lofty. He says He makes them wander in a pathless waste. But on the other side, He takes the needy and sets them securely on high. So, so the high He brings low and the low He brings high and picks him up. Because God has opposed the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. That's what it's talking about. God and His providence will take people in their proud and lofty situation like Nebuchadnezzar and bring them low. Or like Herod in Acts chapter 12. People were saying, He's a God and not a man! And God says, You will die. He was eaten by worms. Bring people down. But also, 
bring the lowly up. And, and in fact, really, this is where we see the cross here. That's where how we come to the cross. We come to the cross in humility. You know, in context here, Psalm 107, it's no accident that people are wandering around. It's no accident that people are prisoned. It's no accident that people feel the results of their foolishness. It's no accident that people go out to the sea and He causes a storm to come upon them. So they reel and totter like John Newton. I just think about the smile of God when John was out there on the water edge and God says, I'm going to bring a storm. It's going to terrify him to his bones and he's going to crawl out to me and I'm going to show myself faithful to him and he's going to become one of the greatest pastors and hymn writers of all time. Bringing calamity for good end. I mean, that is Romans 8.28, right? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him who are called according to His purpose. And oftentimes, this is His grace. right? He brings us down to a point of despair. As verse 43 says, Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindnesses of the Lord. If you just looked at the first half of all these testimonies, you'd say, that's terrible. I mean, isn't it awful to wander in the wilderness? Famished, dry in your mouth, searching nowhere to... Just living with no purpose. Isn't that awful? Isn't it awful to be bound in prison and in darkness and hold up someplace where you just darkness all around? That's bad. Fools, isn't it bad to be off in sin? Isn't it bad to be in this storm? Well, yes, it's bad. But oftentimes, the loving kindness of the Lord often brings people down so they have nowhere else to turn. And so they turn to the Lord. And perhaps today the Lord has brought you low. Maybe you have been brought to a point through circumstances of life which are just desperate, which you have no control over and which are hard and you're wandering and looking, looking for some kind of solution. You've been foolish in your sins. You've been prisoned by the darkness of your own depression. It may just be the grace of God bringing you a point of desperation. Maybe you can identify particularly with one of these four testimonies here at this, this, this point. Maybe you can say, you know what, I, I am wandering right now. Or boy, the clouds of, of darkness and depression, they're coming over me right now. Or maybe you say, boy, I am, I am sinning. I am a fool not seeking God but seeking my own pleasures. Or maybe this morning you can say, I am experiencing a storm in my life. Or maybe you can reflect back and say, boy, that's where I was and God delivered me. I was in bondage and God delivered me. But if you are there this morning, I would say to you, consider verse 43, the loving kindnesses of the Lord. This is plural. It means that He demonstrates His loving kindness in various different venues and opportunities. That's the point of bringing up these four men with testimonies. Various different kinds of circumstances and situations that people are in. The point is that loving kindnesses of the Lord are vast. They are different. And I encourage you to consider loving kindness of the Lord. Be wise and cry out to Him. Cry out to Him when He can be found. And find refuge in the cross of Christ. And then do what? Give thanks unto His name. When you see His wonders and you see how He's brought your soul out of darkness into light, then give thanks to Him. In fact, this morning we're going to have a great opportunity to give thanks to the Lord in the Lord's Supper. 
We're going to do that. The men, they can get ready. They can bring the, the elements here. This is a great time for us to give thanks. In fact, oftentimes the Lord's Supper is called the Eucharist. That just means Thanksgiving. It's an opportunity for us to look back upon how the Lord has delivered us and say, God, we are thankful for the cross and how You have delivered us from that. You know, in First Peter, First Timothy chapter 1, Paul gives his testimony of the saving strength of Jesus Christ. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. He said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. He is formerly a fool, is what he was saying. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Him. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. So I'm the greatest sinner of all. So you remember the Apostle Paul, what did he do? He persecuted the church. He was going and ravaging the churches, the worshipers of God. He was pulling them out, standing trial, throwing them in prison, perhaps stoning others. And yet, listen, why is it that, that Paul says that I found grace in Christ? He says, yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. We've heard four testimonies of four different kinds of people who've been like Paul. Wandered, been imprisoned, been at the sea or been foolish, and yet in them they have found Christ. And Paul says the reason why I found grace and forgiveness in Christ, wicked though I was, being a murderer, he says, so that no one might not despair. So he can say, hey, Paul was saved. I can be saved. He can be saved by calling out unto His name and then worshiping Him. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what Paul's doing. And that's what we do in the, in the Lord's Supper. As we pass the bread and the cup, there's nothing special about this. It's merely just to, allows us to use our senses of taste to really see and to say, you know, Jesus Christ, I thank You and I'm a worshiper of You and I trust in Your forgiveness in the cross of Christ. And you know, this is for believers in Christ. If, if you're not placing your faith in Christ, if you're not trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, but maybe you're trusting your good works, maybe you're trusting your upbringing, maybe you are right now a fool living in your own ways, don't take this bread or cup. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, you will take judgment upon yourself. And just let it pass by. That's okay. Let it pass by. But if you are embracing the cross of Christ, if you've considered the loving kindness of the Lord, if you've been wise and called out to His name, boy, take the bread and take the cup and eat it and drink it with us as a, as a, as a path of worship and thanks unto our Lord. So let me pray and then the men will come and we'll take the cup and Jake will come up and lead us in some singing. Lord, I would pray even right now that You would meet with us and and touch us, cause us to reflect upon our own lives, cause us to reflect upon the ways in which we've been wayward and have followed after our own sin, and bound in darkness and misery, been in danger, and You have rescued us from that. And I pray, Lord, that we would realize that it's all by the, the grace of God that's in Christ Jesus. I pray that we might realize this morning
Lord, even as uh, Jake said earlier, I had to write it down. So that having nothing else, we have everything. May we realize, Lord, that we have really nothing. We have nothing but Jesus Christ. But having Jesus Christ, we have everything. As we take this bread and we eat this cup, it's, it's really just an expression of our heart to say thanks to You. Thanks to You for redeeming us. And I would pray, Lord, that You would fill our mouths with a testimony of thanks and praise even as this psalm began. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness is everlasting. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.